Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. open up to prayer and jump in. Abba, we bless your name tonight. Father, we say thank you for all that you are continuing to do in us and through us, uh, particularly in regards to this particular study. Father, we ask for you to send your spirit into this room, into our hearts, and help us to understand the text. We know that, um, that every word that you have preserved for us is pertinent for our lives, and so we, we earnestly seek to uh, to to really just take unto ourselves that which the Spirit has uh, preserved for us in these precious words. We know that uh, the times that we live in are um, troubling times, really, not just for uh, the world at large who seeks to ignore you and reject you, but rather the times are getting difficult for believers as well. And so even more so now than ever, we need to be about our Father's business. And that, so that's what we seek to do as students tonight, including the teacher. We seek to sit at your feet and learn of you so that we can be uh, your ambassadors throughout the earth. Bless you, Father, for all things that you give to us, your goodness, your mercy, and bless you for, um, well, just for this, this particular class itself. We bless you in Yeshua's name, Amen. All right, welcome to another adventure in Galatians. Is this recording? There we go, we went high. All right, my name is Ariel Ben-Lyman. Oh, okay, thank you. Uh, my name is Ariel Ben-Lyman, and I'm your instructor for the course. Um, we are working our way systematically through the background of Galatians, and we're about halfway through the, the time that we're allotted, 14 weeks. I think we're at week like seven or eight. Is that about right? We are learning rapidly through this study on Galatians that our previous understanding, treat for you, I'll talk to you about it later as well, our previous understanding of um, what Paul's dealing with in the letter to Galatians doesn't seem to work. And when I, when I say that, we're talking about um, the Lutheran view of Paul. If, if you gathered that from my last week's talk, if, if, well, let me put it this way. If you didn't gather it last week, you'll certainly get it today. Um, tonight. Well, yeah, what happens is parts of, parts of Luther's Paul work, and what we be, mean in a nutshell when we say Luther's Paul is that Paul was viewed as a man who viewed Jude, his Judaism as legalistic. And when I say legalistic, we simply mean works-based righteousness. And in that model or in that caricature, Paul comes along as the as someone to liberate the form, the present Jews and the 
upcoming Christians, because they're still kind of new in the game, right? But to liberate the, for, the current Jews and the upcoming Christians from any notion that there's any relevancy of the law in their lives. In this liberation, they are now more or less set free from any bondages or vestiges to the old law. And in doing so, they are free to kind of just live in the spirit. And in that caricature of grace versus law, anyone would, would take the grace side if we cast law in those lights. What ends up happening is when we give Paul an honest reading, and something that helps us understand how Paul should be read honestly is not only scripture itself, first and foremost, but also backgrounds uh, or other, other societies that have lived during his time and wrote during his time, in other words, extant writings, and how they describe the society, society of Judaisms in Paul's day. We can gain insight from them. And using that as one of my primary resources, the rabbinic writings, of which the church neglects to research, by the way, um, by and large. I know there are pockets of pastors who dive into the Talmud here and there, but by and large, why would any Christian need to read rabbinic writings? So, you, you, your silence is, speaks volumes. Um, my... <laughs> My my point, yeah. My point is that's probably what hinders the Christian church and at large the prevailing Christian churches from understanding Paul's Judaism, because without looking into the rabbinic writings, which were extant during Paul's day, or at least I should say, let me say it this way, because this is going on tape. It's not that the rabbinic writings were extant in Paul's day that they existed. Rather, the the, the sayings were circulating, and then they were codified and written down very shortly after the destruction of the temple. So we'll put it that way. They're older than the than the patristic writings, the, the church fathers' writings. You know, Jerome and and Eusebius and Ignatius and all those guys who wrote in the you know early first church records. Bar, even Marcion, who wrote in the first or early first uh, century, um, doesn't go back as far as the rabbinic writings. And what do the what view of Judaism do the rabbinic writings afford us? They afford us a view of Judaism that first and foremost was not as easily caricatured as the Christian Church says. That's, which says that it's a grace, it's a works-based religion. Rather, it's what we've what we've affectionately termed covenantal nomism, and that's what we're going to talk about tonight. So let me t- hand out a paper that is really, again, if you've been if you've been following the commentaries from day one, then when you get the paper, you'll realize that it, it starts at page seven, and there's a reason for that because just pass one, grab one of those, and pass it down. It starts at page seven because it fits the rest of your. Take one of those and pass it down. This should be going in your notebook. And the larger volume is available on the web at the moment, Exegeting Galatians. It's about 50 pages, but it's ongoing because I'm, I'm still developing it as we go. But So at least you guys will have kind of like a prototype of sorts. Yes? Uh, a few weeks ago, maybe you're going to come back to it, but a few weeks ago we went through the whole circumcision thing. Yep. And at the end, you kind of came up to the point of, why circumcision mm-hmm. was then, and you know, the whole Abraham thing. Was and it seems like I've abandoned that, right? Yeah. Okay. We didn't come back to, I thought that we were going to come back to why now. I'm glad, you're, I'm glad you as a student are paying attention. What's happening like like building, and I, maybe I get this from what I do in, in everyday work. I actually build houses when I'm not doing this. I put in wood flooring. And so what you do with any project is you lay, you lay out the foundational pieces and then you start building upon it, which means you might start over in one corner and, and set something up and then abandon that only to go over to the other side of the room and set something up. And that's left over there for weeks until when the time comes to put the two back together, 
that'll end up having. So what I did is I, I established a pillar on one side of our, our, our theology that I haven't abandoned, but for the, for the on the surface, it does seem like I've abandoned it. But, but about, say, maybe four weeks from now, when we're actually um, picking apart Galatians with a fine-tooth comb, we're going to revisit that pile of Galatians rocks, and we'll, or uh, circumcision rocks, and you'll be glad that we did that foundation. But thanks for getting that to me. Because otherwise, when I get to it then, I'm going to have to stop and do that whole thing then. Laying the foundation in the middle, in my opinion, isn't wise. Laying it way up front is easier. What ends up happening is Paul... We talked about, does everyone remember what he's talking about? Okay. Paul approaches the whole topic with that understanding. And without that as our background, we'll fail to fully catch the impact of where Paul's going when he uses this whole argument of circumcision. So we had to do all that background filler, which is kind of painful. But All right. And if you ever have a, this discussion with a well-meaning Christian, you'll probably have to start there too. You can't just jump right in, I promise you, and tell your average Christian friend, guess what, I've been studying Galatians with Ariel on Monday nights, and he says that it's not about works-based Torah, it's about covenantal gnomism. They'll just look at you like you're weird. <laughs> they, won't, they won't know what the heck you're talking about. You have to, in other words, it's like trying to sell them your, your, your product without kind of giving them any assurance that the product's going to work. So. And that also tells them that you've done your homework, because that's what we've done. We've gone back of, as far as I care to go, and we're going to look at Abraham again when we get to chapter 3 of Galatians. Um, because Abraham becomes the exemplar, in Paul's mind, of who is righteous and how one attains righteousness. And Abraham is the exemplar for, I'll, start, I'll, I'll work my way backwards. He's the exemplar, the, uh, the perfect example, for Gentiles because he was credited as righteous. That is, to use per church parlance, he was saved. He was saved while he was still a Gentile, when he was yet uncircumcised. But he becomes exemplar for Jews because he also was, in fact, circumcised and became the father of the covenant of Jewish people. So Paul looks at him as both the father of Jews and non-Jews in that sense. So that whole circumcision picture becomes very important once we realize that. Otherwise, Without that background, the church can not nice and neatly come along and with one stroke of a pen say, Paul uprooted circumcision, the surgical act. And that's not what Paul did per se. What Paul uprooted was the notion that a Jew could turn a Gentile into Jew for the express purpose of making him a genuine covenant member. That's what Paul's uprooting. But the proof is not in what I'm telling you. The proof is in what the Torah says. Because at Acts 15, I'm, I'm chasing a rabbit, but it's a, it's a good rabbit. In Acts 15, the, the whole situation comes to a head. The, I, don't, I think we fail to realize sometimes the significance of Acts 15. Acts 15 is more or less a summit meeting. Like a G5 summit meeting like we might have today. It's not just you know two or three guys getting together in their backyard uh, over a barbecue pit and saying, hey, what do you guys think about the Gentiles? That's, they weren't, it wasn't, wasn't that. Acts 15, is, is, Acts 15 happened so closely on the heels, in my estimation, of Galatians that it necessitated a meeting of the minds. And the Jerusalem Council is the Messianic Sanhedrin of their day. There was a Sanhedrin. Who doesn't know what Sanhedrin is? Everybody does. Okay, there was an existing Sanhedrin, and then they, because they couldn't take all of their orders from the Sanhedrin, because the Sanhedrin was a, a, a godless body of the, in that sort, they formed a, a sister body called a, a Jerusalem Council, which was a Jerusalem Sanhedrin made up of believers. Paul, I'm sorry, not Paul, um, James, the brother of Yeshua, those guys sat on the, in the Jerusalem Council, and they made decisions for all the Messianic communities in the ancient Near East. So that if you, were, if you were out in Galatia and you wanted to know what the headquarters were having to say about this matter, you could check in with the Jerusalem Council. You wouldn't have to check in with the Sanhedrin. 
Does that make sense so far? Okay, so for them to come together in Acts 15 and say, what should we do with the Gentiles? Remember, that's the problem in the first century. Just get that in your mind now. The Jewish problem in the first century was, what should we do with the Gentiles? It's not, what do we do with the Torah now that we're believers, contrary to what the church might think. It's, what do we do with the Gentiles? And the reason is, is because we already have this uncomfortable feeling about the Gentiles. You know, they're cockroaches, they're dogs, they're less than, they're just, I'm speaking like a, gent- a Jew, okay? They're so Gentile. Okay? So for those of you who are Gentiles, don't take that pejoratively. I'm, I'm, I'm making a hyperbole for a reason. But in the first century, that was their view. They're like, gosh, they're Gentiles. I mean, for goodness sake, what do we do with them? So um, for them to come together, make a decision, give out their four stipulations, and send that out as policy or what we might call today halacha, to make that policy. And then re- very next, the very next chapter, Acts 16, Luke records that Paul circumcises Timothy, a Gentile, by the way. This tells us that he wasn't uprooting circumcision. That alone tells us that what church, the church's view that Paul's getting rid of circumcision. Otherwise, what, what is Paul? He sits in the Jerusalem council and says, yeah, yeah, we shouldn't, we should no Torah, no, I'm using church view. No Torah, no circumcision, no kosher, no Sabbath, nothing. Just tell them to be free in the spirit. Give them the four, no more. They're done. And Paul sneaks up and says, Timothy, come here, come here. I've got a present for you. What's Paul doing? Come on. Yeah, and he's supposed to be led by the spirit. And Luke's led by the spirit. Yeah, so I'm not saying that they didn't make mistakes, but there's a little more at stake than that. So, is that... All right. So look at your hand out there. Everybody get one? Were there any extras? Oh, okay. All right. Just curious. I made like 25 of them or something like that. All right. Thanks. Okay. Thanks. Oh, yeah. If you guys know of someone who's missing today and you need one, let me know. Crunch all you want. We'll make more, as Doritos always says. Okay. Okay. Look at the first one. These points are just numbered. Look at number three. We're not even going to study that. But I do want to make one point out of point three. In point three, where it says proselyte conversion works of the law, part one, understanding the background, jump down to the one, two, three, fourth subsetted paragraph down there, really small. I just want to read that and chat on it for a little bit. And then I want to jump on to number four. That's the meat of my commentary tonight. To be born circumcised was regarded as the privilege of the most saintly of people, from Adam, who was made in the image of God, and Moses, to Zerubbabel. The quote there is from the Midrash and the Talmud in um, Sota 12a. Look at the next one, under the, mid, Genesis, the Midrash to Genesis Rabbah. Uncircumcision being considered a blemish, circumcision was to remove it and to render Abraham and his descendants perfect. These are rabbinic views of circumcision. The paper starts out as that uh, we observe some rabbinic literature and the way they view circumcision. Look at the last one on the page of page 7 there at the bottom. Rabbinic literature holds that one who removes his circumcision has no portion in the world to come. That's, and there's your references. Mishnah, the Midrash, Sifrei, and the Talmud Sanhedrin 99. These, these lets us know, and again, these rabbinic writings were codified, written down roughly around 200 CE and following. Um, but they were in circulation well before Yeshua, uh, Yeshua's day even. What we have is an oral tradition that ran or that existed in the Jewish communities of Paul's day. Oral transmission of concepts. Kind of like, kind of like think of it as an example of like maybe today's rumors, or I'm sorry, not today's rumors, today's like uh, clever sayings, you know, um, an apple a day keeps a doctor away. You know, it's not written down anywhere that that's law, but it's, I mean, if I said it, how many of you just recognize that when I said that an apple a day? Okay, that's like an oral thing that exists in a community. 
But what if at some point in time the society said, gosh, if we don't write this down, we're going to lose this truth. So they wrote it down and then gave credit to whatever rabbi invented it. And then from that point, it's codified, it's written down. And it becomes a maxim that we can teach now as written versus before it was just oral. That's what's going on in the oral traditions. And so a lot of what you have in the Talmud and the Mishnahs and such is an oral, it started out orally and it existed in the communities as sayings being taught by wise people leaders in the community and at some point in time they collected all those and wrote them down and put them in a collection so that they wouldn't lose that question yeah um there is a um let's see where is it do i have it on here yeah actually in the second paragraph um they talked about that it is known as um epispasm there's I don't want to get too graphic because there's a, we're, we have a mixed crowd in here, but more or less there are, there's different amounts that are removed when circumcision takes place. It depends on what group does it. And so if you don't remove as much, um, there's enough left over that you could uh, make it appear that maybe you didn't even get it the, the first time. So depends on how much you take off. So I don't want to get too more, more detailed than that. So you just have to figure, figure out the rest as adults. But... But yes, there was, a, there was in fact, um, efforts to remove that or appear to remove it. Obviously, they couldn't make the skin grow back. But what we're talking about is make it appear as if that it was gone. So, so this was a common problem? It was a common problem because in, in, the Paul, in the Judaisms of Paul's day, Greek culture had pervaded and had permeated Jewish society to the point that many Jewish people were foregoing their Jewishness by saying, look, we don't want to be circumcised. We don't want because it's persecution. And the easy road is just, you know, come on, let's just live in the live. Let's just give in. Let's just be Greeks and get along, get over, get over it. Because that's what the Greeks are saying. Come on, you Jewish people. You guys are defeated people. Just get over it. Just get over it. You're living in your land, but you're subjugated. You're marginalized. You're nothing. Just give in. Just, just blend in. Just, just, you know. And that, and, and that's, what, that's kind of what was happening. And so the, you know, those people like the Maccabeans are saying, no, if there's anything that's going to characterize us as a Jewish people, it's being faithful to the covenant. And the sign of the covenant is both Sabbath and circumcision because both of them use the Hebrew word oat as sign. So, so anyway, jump past that page. Um, on page 8, Mark Nanos does some... Mark Nanos, by the way, just reference-wise, those of you who are curious to follow this a little further and do your own deep study, Mark Nanos is a great resource. Um, another great resource that I brought tonight, James D.G. Dunn. He has some great work. I bought just one, one book. This is one of my favorites, Jesus, Paul, and the Law. Um, very good, but it's a scholarly read. So I'm giving you guys the, the distilled version of, of these guys' books. And when I can, I quote them as often as I can. But James D.G. Dunn, uh, N.T. Wright... Um, and, I, and Mark Nanos and some of these na- so just highlight the names as you see them show up you don't have to write them down they're, they're in the commentaries Mark Nanos um, demonstrates most credibly I'm on page 8 most credibly that the Judaisms of the first century functioned with what we like to call a serious theological flaw in regards to their view of circumcision now circumcision becomes an identifying marker in the Jewish community the thing that helps us understand Galatians is knowing how the Judaisms of Paul's day viewed the Torah in its social function, not merely as commandments given from God. I'll give you an example. In the early part of the 20th century, Pentecostalism was, and still is today as we look backwards, was identified 
pretty much by what identifying things. What, how could you kind of tell if someone was a Pentecostal in the early first part of the 20th century? Speaking in tongues. Okay. Speaking in tongues is a gift. It's one of the charismata, according to the Greek. It's charismatic. But the Pentecostal movement came to take tongues as one of the primary characteristics of their group. So it became a social marker for them. So that people from the outside looking in more or less identified tongues with the Pentecostal movement. And likewise, from the inside, the Pentecostals identified themselves as tongue-speaking peoples. Okay, it wasn't that you couldn't be... It wasn't that you that you could speak in tongues and not be part of the Pentecostal movement so much as that if you were part of the Pentecostal movement, you spoke in tongues. It's not to say that there weren't people who weren't part of the movement and also spoke in tongues, but to be in the group, you you it was kind of like the norm. I mean, what? You don't speak in tongues? Come up here. Let me lay hands on you. I'm going to make sure that you do. We've all been to those churches. The point is, it, became, it becomes for them a, an identity marker, a badge, if you will. Okay? It's a so, it plays a social function. So that to separate the two is nearly impossible. The same thing is true in the first century Judaisms. The Judaisms of Paul's day identified themselves as the circumcised ones. The covenant members were circumcised, at least the males were. And therefore, Torah became a, a badge to identify them. So that if you were on the outside looking in at them, oh, those are the people who keep kosher, they keep the Sabbath, they're circumcised. Those people, you know, the Jews. So it became synonymous to, to recognize Jewish people as the males being circumcised, they keep kosher, they keep the Sabbath. Those were their, their badges. And so it was in that worldview... In, in other words, they weren't just doing those things because God told them to do them so much as it were that... Well, this is who we are. To, to, to exist any other way is just not to exist. It's not to be a Jew. It just doesn't make any sense. It'd be, again, like in the first century, or the first part of the 20th century, a Pentecostal going, you know, I just want to be me. I don't have to speak in tongues. Everybody look at him and go, you're not part of us then. Okay, that's what's going on. And that's how we view, or that's pro- the proper way to view the, the centuries, the f- Judaisms that Paul deals with. So Mark Nanos comes along and lets us see this. Um, I don't want to read the entire discussion. What I do want to point out simply is, um, let's see, where is it? There's one paragraph that just kind of jumped out. Hmm. I am not finding it at the moment. I'll just paraphrase what I what I remember him uh, saying, more or less. Um, the Judaisms of his day saw that so strongly that they identified themselves as, as circumcised, as covenant members being circumcised, that we had more or less um, from an argument from simple to complex. So what we have is that um, uh, step one was, and I'm, create, I'm just making this up on the spot to kind of get out what's in here out onto the board. Step one was that a person is a Jew. Step two and it's in this progression. That's supposed to be an arrow. The progression is because I'm a Jew, or ste- I, I, I'll, I'll tell you why I make them steps in a moment. The step two is because I'm a Jew, I am an Israelite. And step three is because I'm an Israelite, I'm a covenant member. And then step four is because I'm a covenant member, I get... Torah. Now remember, Torah itself is the package. That was the goal in the Judaism's view. In other words, if God gave you Torah, in essence, God's giving you 
promises. It's like getting Bill Gates to sign that check. If you can get his signature, you got it, right? That's what you want. So the Jew gets is a part of Israel, is a covenant member, gets the Torah. Therefore, and it wraps back around. We get the Torah because we're Jews. So for a person who's born Jewish, it's a very simple progression. I'm born a Jew. I'm in Israel. I'm a covenant member. Therefore, I get the Torah. That's what we call covenantal nomism in a light way. For the Gentile, that's why I call them steps. For the Gentile, okay, I'm on the outside looking in. I'm a Gentile. And I'm looking at these people walking in. And keep in mind, there's a favor on God's people. I'm watching these people. Put yourself back in first century Judaism. I'm a Roman citizen. I'm watching these Jews and, and they have joy. They have peace of, of sorts. They have contentment. Now, I'm not saying all of them do, but generally speaking, God's presence was there. I mean, the temple was there. Give me a break. God's presence was there. So I see what they've got. I see they've got their festivals. They've got their freedoms. They, they speak of their promises in this age and the age to come. They speak of all that they've got. And they talk about it in these terms. It's the Torah that God gave to us. And so the, when I say, well, gosh... I'm a Gentile. How can, you know, in other words, there's a barrier here. <laughs> How can I get your Torah? And they say, well, you got to be a covenant member. How do I become a covenant member? You got to join Israel. How do I join Israel? You got to become a Jew. So now I'm back down to step one, exactly where Paul picks up. The influencers are telling the Gentiles, you guys have to become Jews so that you can become part of Israel, so that you can become covenant members. So that you can get the Torah. Does that make sense? Now I'm not saying we believe and agree with it. I'm just saying that's how we understand Paul's writings. Okay. That's what Mark Nanos is demonstrating there. Turn, what I want us to do is look at covenantal nomism, nomism, sorry, on page 10. Here I pull a lot of quotes. Because some people accuse me of just making up my own stuff. So I, the, the majority of page 10 is footnotes. Just so you know, it's not my own stuff. All right, I'm going to read and then I'll, I'll jump into the, com- into the footnotes when I can. What Mark Nanos and other recent scholars such as E.P. Sanders, James D.G. Dunn, N.T. Wright, et al., what they're describing as pertaining to Paul's first century Judaism and how it reportedly defined itself has been carefully labeled as covenantal gnomism. And there's a footnote to three, and I want to read that footnote. Again, I can't stress this more importantly. Without being guilty of reductionism, I don't want to be guilty of that. I don't want to say that now that we figured it out, we'll just reduce everything to this being the problem. But this is a major hermeneutic key to understanding Paul. How many of you are in Mark's hermeneutic class? You guys have a homework assignment like Paul versus James or something like that? This is a key to understanding Mark's question, is how they understood, how how they looked at... uh, 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 justification versus sanctification, which, just so you guys know, I have a paper on that on the internet too. It's called Trust and Obey. Um, as in obedience versus yeah, trust and obey. Like the old Christian hymn, trust and obey, for there's no other way. Yeah. All right, um, so for those of you who are in Mark's class and wanted to like, kind of get ahead, now I don't, I've never heard Mark develop his thoughts on covenantal nomism, so you're getting my side first. Mark's welcome to come along and present his view. I don't know exactly how his view is, but here's, here's how I've articulated it. Covenantal nomism. Look at my, look at my footnote to three. It's very lengthy. E.P. Sanders is known for coining the term covenantal nomism. This term is essential to the new, the, to the NPP view. I'll tell you what NPP is later. Um, 
is essential to the NPPP view as Sanders argues that this is the pattern of religion found in Second Temple and Rabbinic Judaism. The term is used as shorthand, that is shorthanded, shortened term, used to describe a larger idea. Here's Sanders' definition of the term. Briefly put, covenantal nomism is the view that one's place in God's plan is established on the basis of the covenant and that the covenant requires as the proper response of man his obedience to its commandments while providing means of atonement for transgressions. And that's from E.P. Sanders' Paul and Palestinian Judaism on page 75. This is important because it has huge implications for one's understanding of first century Judaism and thus for one's interpretation of how Paul interacted with it. If covenantal nomism is true, then when Jews spoke of obeying commandments, or when they required strict obedience of themselves and fellow Jews, that would include proselytes, by the way, it was because they were keeping the covenant. It was not out of legalism. In other words, we are recasting Paul as when he tells the Jewish people of his day, um, it's not by the works of law that one receives righteousness, but out of grace and such unmerited favor. Works of law is not a mechanical walking into the Torah. Works of law is this whole school of thought that I just put up on the board. The whole school of thought that because I'm a Jew, I'm an Israelite, because, and that makes me a covenant member, and that means I get the Torah. Notice what's absent up here. Faith. Yeah, that's where Paul would disagree. He's like, uh, where's faith on your, on, your, on your scale? That's what he would say to his fellow Jewish brothers of his day. Where's faith on the board? That's why he's upset. They had, they had effectively put faith out of the picture. It was something that could either be achieved at birth or something that you could give to someone who hadn't been born with this privilege. So sometimes I'll speak of Jewish identity as either natural or achieved. Natural means you're born a Jew. Achieved means you convert. Um, and again, covenantal nomism is the package to, to describe that of sorts. Sanders says that one's place in God's plan is established on the basis of the covenant. Therefore, as long as a Jew kept their covenant with God, he remained part of God's people. How does one keep the covenant? Becomes the question. Sanders tells us the covenant requires as the proper response of man his obedience to its commandments. Remember, when I say covenant, I'm, I'm looking at Torah. The Torah is the covenant. God says, here's the covenant that I'll make with you. In the Torah are contained the promises and provisions and stipulations of the covenant members. Because in God's word, we not only have God's responsibility to the side of, the, of it, but we have man's responsibility. We have God promising all that he's promised to do, and we have Israel responding. Then we have the, cup, the, the blessings and the curses all outlined. It is a legal document between two parties. Therefore, when I say covenant... It's, it's, you know, it's kind of like the marriage document between a, a, a husband and a wife. And if I violate that, that contract with my wife, in essence, then I'm, you know, I'm, I'm doing that to the covenant. God forbid. But that's more or less what, I, what I'm doing when I cheat on my wife or if, if I were able to get to that point. You guys follow me so far, right? So that when, when, when Israel repeatedly played the harlot and broke the commandments, God would say to her, you have broken covenant with me. That's synonymous with breaking the commandments. Easy to see, right? Let's put it back up there. All right. How does one keep the covenant? Sanders tells us the covenant requires as the proper response of man his obedience to his commandments. All of Judaism's talk about obedience, when we read about that, is thus in the context of covenantal nomism. And 
Sanders got taken to task by his uh, contemporaries for saying all, because that's what we call reductionism, where we just reduce everything to that. I'm trying to stay away from those that point, is that all of uh, whenever they said obinus, because it is true that a certain percentage or uh, fringe movement in Judaism believe that keeping the covenant, it's or keeping the commandments itself, gained them covenant status. That is to say, the simplistic ladder to heaven all over again. What does God require of you? Keep the commandments, and if you do so, I'll make you a covenant member, and as such, then you get into heaven. Some, there's a fringe group that believes that, but the majority didn't believe that. They believe this, this notion. This is how I'm in. And I don't do anything to earn that, by the way. God just graciously gave it to me. So, um, Versus the other one is self-effort, right? I gotta, you know, you know, like the, I gotta work at it. I gotta keep the commandments. I gotta do them. I gotta do them. I gotta do them, because there's a reward on the other end of doing them. So, all of Judaism's talk about obedience is thus in the context of covenantal nomism and not legalism. I agree with that kernel of thought, that their view of getting God's attention was not as simplistic as the Christian church has played them out to be for the last 2,000 years. It's just not that way, folks. I'm sorry. That's Luther's Paul. We can let him lay in the grave and die a well-deserved rest, dead, dead death. So, um, as a result, Judaism is then not concerned with how to have a right, right relationship with God, but with how to remain his covenant people, which is really saying the same thing. How do you have a right relationship with God? Keep covenant with him. Don't get on his bad side. Don't, you know, thumb your nose at him. And God won't, ex, won't, won't what's the word I want to use? Excommunicate you. <laughs> this has sometimes been compared to the issue of keeping or losing one's salvation. Because the word salvation wasn't used the same way it is today. Salvation in today's parlance is more individualistic. You know, I might go around and go, are you saved? Are you saved? Are you saved? I haven't even talked to you guys yet. You guys are watching me ask them. You're like, gosh, I can't wait till he gets to me. But in, in, in Judaic view, and especially in Paul's day, you don't walk up and say, are you saved? Are you saved? All I go do is go, are you a Jew? Are you a Jew? If you say yes, then you're saved. I can just ask the whole group, you guys all Jewish? You're all Jewish? You're all Israel? Then you're all saved. It's a corporate thing. They didn't see it as rugged individualistic as we have inherited in our Western mindset. You know, we're, we're the rugged Westerners. Don't tell us what to do. We're doing a chart on course. So the church kind of has developed that, at least the church of the West, you know, don't ask me what I believe, or don't, 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 you know, it's, it's about relationship. It's not about religion. Um, it's about, you know, it's about, it's about me and God, not about the church I attend or the people I belong to. But no one in the first century would ever say that. You know, I'm a Jew and I, I'm, and I'm in. Where's your people then? <laughs> is what the next response would be. You know, if I caught you on a road by yourself praying on a, on a little rug in first century Judaism, I might say, well, what people group do you belong to? Let's say I'm just a stranger. And you're like, I'm a Jew, your response. I'd be like, well, then where are your people? <laughs> but today, you know, we don't, we don't have that notion. Does that help out a little bit? All right. So now I'll jump back up to the top. What is covenantal gnomism then? <laughs> jump back down to the bottom. <laughs> I'm following the footnotes is what I'm doing for you guys. Down to the bottom, I'm a point number four. Okay? Everybody following me? Footnote number four. And by the way, you'll get the footnote references on the next page. It's just that I couldn't fit them on this page. The new perspective on Paul, also called new perspectivism here after NPP. That's what NPP is. So you guys down with NPP? Yeah, you know me. All right. I'm sorry. I had to go there. <laughs> Some of you in this room caught that. Others it went right over your head. Yeah, I, I used to be like that. Back in the day. Okay, yeah. All right. 
Let's come back out of the clubs, get back into uh, the, the, the study here. I'm glad you guys can appreciate the humor. All right, NPP is a system of thought in New Testament scholarship that seeks to reinterpret the Apostle Paul and his letters. In brief, the NPP is a reaction to the Lutheran Paul, in essence, the traditional interpretation of him. That's why we keep putting that, I keep using that term, Lutheran Paul, or you might hear me say Reformation Paul. But more or less, that is the average view in today's prevailing Christian churches, is the Lutheran Paul slash Reformation Paul. Proponents of the Lutheran Paul and we've already said this, but I'll say it again. Proponents of the Lutheran Paul understand him to be arguing against a legalistic Jewish culture that seeks to earn their salvation through works. Very simple. And Paul's letter to Galatians is the answer to that dilemma. And what's the answer? You're not under the law. You're under grace. Translation, you don't have to keep Sabbath. You don't have to keep kosher. You don't have to keep the festivals. You don't have to wear seat seat. All that's over, dead, done with. Get away from it. Live your life by the Spirit. And that's why we have the, the rift that we have of sorts in the church today. We have old perspective and what we're going to talk about. However, and that, that would be true, theologically that's true. Theologically. You can't keep the Sabbath, kosher, seed seed, all that stuff to get into heaven. Isn't that true? So, and that, sometimes that'll be the straw man that, that um, Lutheran Paul arguments will come to. They'll say, well, after all, are you guys saying that you can do that, all that to keep safe? And we'll go, uh, oh, it's messianic. We'll go, well, no, no, we're not saying that. Well, that's proof and that, that what our view is correct. No, that's not proof. That's just true. <laughs> but that's not what Paul's arguing against. That's my point. So be aware of the subtle difference there. In other words, when it comes to fighting against legalism, we stand on the church's side. Any, any religion that comes along and support, supposedly thinks that you can simply do X, Y, Z to get into heaven is wrong. We do agree and affirm that it is by sola, grat, sola, sola gratias, by grace alone. We do affirm that, just like the church believes. But what they fail to understand is how we're using Paul the way we are. They see us keeping Torah, they keep Sabbath kosher, and they're just they're scratching their heads. Don't you guys know? They you know they're just they're baffled. Do you guys have Christian friends and family members who's just baffled that you guys are walking in Torah? You know they're like, last year you weren't wearing the wearing the beadwork. What's what's with the beadwork? Yeah, and they're just confused. You know what? You guys can't eat ham. Are you still Christian? Yeah. This is so entrenched in our society that it's just hard. It is, and we gotta, we gotta, share, we gotta show grace. Why? It is nearly impossible for the Christian church to think outside of the box. It was equally impossible, as we're going to find out in the Galatian study, for the Judaisms of their day to think outside of the box of covenantal nomism that we're in because we're Jews. What the Gentiles are covenant members? Because in, in essence, all I can do up here now is what Paul is teaching is just Gentile. And the rest. Nothing else changes. Gentiles are part of Israel, which makes them covenant members, which means they're privileged to the Torah. They have access to the Torah, which means all the covenants, you know. That's what he's teaching. It was nearly impossible for them to think outside that box, just as impossible it is for the church today to think outside the box of Lutheran Paul. It really is. And you can preach to your blue in the face, but until the Spirit reveals it to them, it is going to be hidden from their view. And it took the Spirit to open people like Peter's eyes, you know, a vision. The four sheets popping down. And with Paul, being blinded, knocked off his horse. That's what it took for, for them to think outside of this box. What do you think it's going to take for the church to think outside of theirs? <laughs> yeah, question or comment? Um, covenant nomism. What is, where does that root word come from? Nomism, good, I'm glad she asked. Um, nomism is the, root, the Greek word for law. It's namas. Oh, yeah, 
The root word is namas. Namas is the Greek word for Torah or law. Covenantal, of course, you know what that is. So, yeah, namism. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a law that is attached to its covenant. It, that the covenants and the law are married together. In, in essence, you get the law because you're a covenant member, and because you're a covenant member, you are expected to keep the law. Yeah, that is true. Yeah, that's why the Judaisms were so hard to set free from it, because it has its roots in truth. We're going to see that's where Paul. That's why Paul doesn't jettison the Torah. He doesn't just say to you Gentiles, you're free, you're set free, because that would be the wrong thing to say. Because all of the promises are in the Torah. And if you say that this is dead and done away with, what are you giving the Gentiles? Squat. Yeah, you're giving them nothing. If they're not covenant members, then God broke covenant with them. And there is no Israel. Therefore, when you read all the promises to Israel, they're empty promises. So Paul's not going to come along and just go, hey, I know the solution. That's not the answer. So in essence, yeah, Paul has to, that's why it took Paul such a long time to work through this because he's like, wait a minute. God only did cut a covenant with Israel. Because I could ask you now, did God cut a covenant with any people group of the earth other than them? Nope. (laughs) So it gets really complex when you start to realize that there is a kernel of truth to covenantal nomism. It's just simply that the Judaisms of Paul's day and the influencers that we're calling the adversaries in the peace, the bad guys, um, the influencers have taken their position as Jews, that is to say their ethnic marker, and made that the qualifying factor for becoming covenant members. Therefore, the point of contention was here, Jew-Gentile. Rather than for Paul, it would be the point of contention would be faith. So, you had a question or comment? Yes. Um, when I was and then you had one too. A lot of varying viewpoints on this, so I don't know. Um, you, what is, is there anything that Jews are supposed to follow currently in our Gosh, good question. I won't be able to answer it in this setting because I've only got one minute left. But I will remember your question because it's a current topic. And it is part of our discussion. The question is, you know, what, what parts of the Torah do the Jews have to keep? What parts do the Gentiles have to keep? Part of the answer is in what branch of Judaism you're asking. The other is in understanding what part of covenant membership do they enjoy. So that does become part of the question. I know Mark's going to burst through here in a second. So let me just finish. Um, jump over to page... Um, actually I suppose I could just finish this I'll close with this thought and then you're done Um, however supporters of the NPP argue that Paul has been misread he was actually combating Jews who were boasting because they were God's people the elect or the chosen one who were boasting because they were yeah they were boasting as a result of them being God's people the elect or the chosen ones their works so to speak are not merely works that the Christian would, would understand them where we say works like like keep the Torah, keep Sabbath. I'm sorry, keep the keep the Sabbath, keep kosher, all this stuff. Those are, those aren't just merely works. Rather, they were done to show that they were God's covenant people and not to earn their salvation. And in shorthand, they didn't follow Torah to become saved. They followed Torah because they were saved. I maintain that position, by the way. That's accurate. We keep covenant with God because we are covenant members. So parts of what they did were right. So the result is a Judaism that supposedly affirmed, there's my phrase, solo gratia. Um, covenant, I'm sorry, 10, 11? Yeah, solo gratia. You've got to jump down to the very bottom to see where the footnote follows. It's not at the top of the page. Remember, we're reading footnotes. Solo gratia, grace alone. Presently, its effects are seen in the academic world of New Testament scholars, particularly those who focus their attention on Pauline studies and the study of first century Judaism. So, in closing, let me ask real quick, did everybody have this? It was the outline of Galatians. 
It's kind of like a syllabus. Functions that way. Who didn't get it? Everybody got one? Great. I made copies just in case. Um, some of you have homework for me, yes? If you want to turn your homework in now. And after you turn in your homework, technically we're done. That way if Mark jumps through, you can say, we're done. Anybody have homework that I need to... Anyone else did homework? So you are dismissed. You are now officially on your break. Omain, Omain, you're, you're done. It's five after. But I'll still entertain questions. So when Mark pops through, just tell him you're doing it on your own volition. So I don't get in trouble. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com.